that uh, little person inside there trying to get comfortable, perfect, get a perfect position. The water right where you need it. Good evening, everyone. What a beautiful thing this rain is, huh? Do you like the rhythm it makes? You like, like the soggy pants bottoms? <laughs> it's pretty great. <laughs> so uh, this evening, uh, I'm not going to give a Dharma talk as you might have expected, but more uh, picking up, I call it sometimes the excavation of my notebooks. As a Dharma teacher, uh, and I'm sure they would confirm it, other Dharma teachers, we're always looking at things, oh, that's interesting, that supports uh, impermanence, that's uh, a great commentary on suffering, you know, that the world gives us lots of uh, examples to work with in our, in our talks and in our practice. So I've, I've been an avid gatherer of bits and pieces. And uh, there's a few that I want to share with you. Some of them are my writing. Uh, some of them come from other sources. But uh, I hope you will enjoy them and maybe even learn something. Maybe. First of all, this day being uh, a day of gratitude, of thinking about the gra gratitude, the attitude of gratitude. And here's a little piece about that. First of all, looking back at history, I feel deep gratitude for living in this place and this time. Here on the fertile continent of Turtle Island in this era of relatively great freedom and abundance. Just a few generations ago, most of our ancestors were peasants and they had almost no fun at all. And they had to sleep in the same room as their farm animals. And they had to live without painkillers or without Velcro. <laughs> We're living a pretty high life here. And think, only the past few hundred years, we've nearly doubled the lifespan of the average human. So now you get twice as long to be yourself. Also, let's all give thanks for living in an interglacial period. You know, getting caught in an ice age could ruin your whole day. We can give thanks for the opposable thumb. Without it, think how difficult it would be to button your pants or give a thumbs up. But of course, we now know the real reason for our opposable thumb, and that is the better to text with. I feel immense uh, gratitude for the discoveries of modern science and the perspectives they offer. For instance, astrophysicists have figured out the age of our universe, which is 
billion years old today. <laughs> Happy birthday to you too. But that's a cause for real self-esteem, you know? What a grand project we are. It's taken the universe 13.7 billion years to make us. Let's not blow it. While we're on the subject of the universe, I give thanks for the Kepler Space Telescope, which just sent back a picture of yet another newly discovered galaxy being called the Sombrero Galaxy, which, as you might imagine, is shaped like a Mexican hat. And that galaxy contains 600 billion suns. And I got to see that in my lifetime and know of that. 600 billion suns. I mean, I thought it was all about us. Maybe it's a display. The Lord is trying to prove something. Anyway, astronomers now estimate that in the Milky Way galaxy alone, there are over 30,000 planets that could support life. In the Milky Way galaxy alone, 30, 000, over 30,000 planets that could support life. And that makes it very likely, it's looking more and more likely, that life does exist elsewhere in the cosmos. I think that's really good news because it takes the pressure off of us. It means the universe is probably not just about us, so we don't have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos. So relax. And as you sit there on your seat, as we did the other day, you might as well give thanks for gravity, because right now all of us are hurling through space on this tiny rock and thanks to gravity, you don't have to hold on. Along with modern science, I also give deep thanks for living in a time and place where all the world's wisdom and culture are available to us. So now I can practice Buddha's samadhi in the morning and then go out and listen to Latin music at night. One thing that I give thanks for almost every day of my life starting to weaken a little bit is the fact that I live here by the San Francisco Bay, bordered by the great ocean on one side, the majestic granite mountains on the other side, both visible on a clear day from the Berkeley Hills. And just to the east, the richest farmland in the world, just to the north, the hills reminiscent of Italy or Greece, growing nuts and grapes and olives. And in the middle of it all, the magic metropolis, the dreamlike town at the edge of the world, San Francisco. The list goes on and on, friends. And if you want to make your own, you can start by joining me in the attitude of gratitude for this next breath. The mystery of life moving through you. We only get about 13 million breaths in a lifetime and then maybe none at all for the rest of eternity. So go deep, taste it. And I encourage you all to give thanks whenever you can. Love this world because only if you love it will you find the energy to preserve its life and beauty.
This really uh, moved me. I, uh, I'll read it to you. The astronaut Rusty Schweikert was out there examining the moon, orbiting around the moon. And this is what he wrote about his experience. You let go and you float out and then you look down and there are no limits to it. There are no frames. There are no boundaries. You're out there floating, actually going 17,000 miles an hour and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the speed you know you're going. As you stare down at that magnificently beautiful earth below you, you start thinking about what you are seeing, the incredible spectacle of it. And you start remembering your house, your family, your identity, your, your friends, your nation, your earth. And something hits you. In an instant, you realize that small blue and white spot is everything that means anything to me. All love, tears, joy, games, all of it on that little spot out there that you can cover with your thumb. And you realize from that perspective that you've changed. There's something new here. The relationship is no longer what it was. The silence is deeper than you can imagine. Go meditate up there. Out there, excuse me, it's not, there's no up. You've heard about that, haven't you? Actually, you know, we're all on the bottom side of the planet. We keep thinking of ourselves as up, you know, North America, all the, that we're up above the top of the planet. We're on the bottom. Uh, Nigel Calder, scientist, writes, <laughs> if an alien were to hover a few hundred yards above the planet, it could be forgiven for thinking that cars were the dominant life form. And that human beings were a kind of ambulatory fuel cell, injected when the car wished to move off and ejected when they were spent. <laughs> All parts of the earth are built over, trampled, full of commerce. Farms and fields drive back the forests. Even rocks are cultivated, swamps are drained. Today's towns outnumber yesterday's houses. Everywhere on earth are residences, peoples, governments, and human growth now so clogs the world it can barely support us. And as our needs increase, we struggle with each other for them. And nature fails us. That was written by the Roman historian Tyrullian, 150 AD. perspective. I try to keep up a, a list like this. Uh, we don't see the world that we walk through. We're living at a time that's, uh, I think, a shock to our system. 
we, uh, it took you know, many thousands of generations to produce a, a, a human being. And in the last one or 200 years, we've completely revolutionized our world. We've transformed our world. Henry Ford built his first car in 1893. The Wright brothers made their first flight, 1903. 1900, the first transmission of human speech via radio waves. That's 1900. 1900, Max Planck first formulated quantum theory, which led to the creation of the atom bomb and complete transformation of our understanding of reality. In, 900, in 1900, Freud published The Interpretation of Dreams. In 1900, only one and a half billion people lived on Earth. 100 years ago, a little over, no cars, no airplanes, no radio, no television, no painkillers, no antibiotics, no birth control, no Ziploc bags, no plastic. And 100 years ago, nobody believed in rock and roll. I do not believe that a multiplication of desires and machinery contrived to supply them is taking the world a single step nearer to its goal. I wholeheartedly detest this mad desire to destroy distance and time, to increase animal appetites, and go to the ends of the earth in search of their satisfaction. If modern civilization stands for all this, and I have understood it to do so, I call it satanic. Mahatma Gandhi. This is a, a bit of a follow-up to Matthew's talk last night. Recently, I heard someone on the radio explaining the new crime of identity theft, and I immediately thought, yes, rob me, please. Take my identity and leave the cash. I can regard my entire Buddhist path as a matter of shifting identities, and it all started with me trying to run away from myself, the sentimental histrionic drama of me-ness. The Buddha says that the false conceit of I or self is the bane of our existence, and I was indeed relieved when I began to see through the various membranes of personal identity. But what really surprised and delighted me is what I saw on the other side. It turns out that I am not who I thought I was. I'm much, much more than that. For the most part, we each live in our own story and it's pretty much the only one we tell. And that's too bad because while each of us is lost in our private drama, we don't notice that we're taking part in grand epics and heroic noble projects. For instance, even while reading email or shopping for socks, we continue to operate as breathing cells in the great body of life on Earth, part of a fascinating multi-billion years experience, experiment in biology and consciousness. 
Of course, in your own story, you're always the star. But in the big story of life on earth, you're just a bit player, just a walk-on part. But that's the point. You can disappear into this grand perspective. It's like walking into a Chinese landscape painting and getting swallowed up by the deep gorges of bamboo forest and eternal sky. You can move out of the personal into increasingly large circles of inclusion and identity until finally you can point in any direction and say, along with the great mystics, I am that. Tatvam asi. So I'd like to uh, pay a little homage to people who led me into Dharma when I was younger. I was younger for a long time. <laughs> but I, I was a philosophy major in college and just uh, trying to figure out what this incarnation, what this life is all about, you know, uh, trying to understand myself and my place in it. And I started reading the existential philosophers who actually uh, kind of got it a little bit, but they didn't have the facilities, uh, they didn't have the teachers around quite as much as we do. Camus wrote, if only I was a tree among trees or a cat among cats, I would not have this problem. It is this persistent reference to myself that keeps me alien from all things. Something like, he said something like that. It wasn't exactly, exactly it. But one of my great heroes and great influence on me was Jack Kerouac. I see a vision of a great rucksack revolution. Thousands or even millions of young Americans wandering around with rucksacks, going up to mountains to pray, making children laugh and old men glad. All of them Zen lunatics who go about writing poems that happen to appear in their heads for no reason and also by being kind, giving visions of eternal freedom to everybody and to all living creatures. Jack Kerouac from the Dharma Bums, 1958. I have many pages like this. New Science Magazine claims that the number of clowns in the world is down from 35,000 to only 20,000. <laughs> it was in a science magazine. <laughs> there was some research and testing, and they found that in the year 2000, the average American attention span was 12 seconds. In 2013, the same study had the American attention span average down to eight seconds. 
the attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. I don't know, you probably can't all see my socks, but Albert Einstein is on my socks. <laughs> and here he is, here on this piece of paper. I fear the day that technology will surpass our human interaction. The world will have a generation of idiots. <laughs> now, I'm really interested in uh, evolution. I think it is, helps to carry the mythology of our time. It's, uh, it's science, it connects us, it gives explanations for you know, so many things about our lives here on Earth. Um, and I think it really supports so much of the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha said this, body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. And the story of evolution has so millions and millions of causes and conditions for every little change in creatures and beings that have led to us in these bodies now. I think, um, so I, I, I was thinking about it, I thought, we have to honor our ancestors. So why not go and honor our oldest ancestor, the single-celled organism? In the evolution story, human life does not begin with Adam and Eve, but starts many epochs and eons and a few months earlier. When the first living being appeared on Earth, we can begin our ancestor worship by giving this being a name. How about Una? Or is it Uno? Uno, that's what I thought. Una doesn't sound right. It sounds like it could be somebody's name. According to biologists, Uno came on the scene 3.8 billion years ago, today. Anyway, I can imagine Uno, Uno floating around on the ancient seas as happy as anyone could possibly be at the time. For one thing, there was no one around who wanted to eat her. And furthermore, she had all the food to herself. As you might imagine, Uno eventually became lonely and sad, being unable to share this strange and beautiful existence in which she found herself. Hey, look at that gorgeous sunset, somebody, please. After a few million years of isolation, Uno finally came upon a solution and decided that he had so much pulsing plasma inside of him that he could share a little with someone else. So he took the little packet of chemicals and minerals inside his body and stretched and stretched and pushed them out from the spiraling DNA core of his being. And after a few million years, with a final spasm of energy, boing, uh, Uno split in two. <laughs> Uno split in two. The story of evolution had begun. 
At last, Uno had someone to share the world with, and he started having twice as much fun. What really happened was that Uno, Uno had found someone to love, and the being he fell in love with was actually part of himself. You might say that Uno number one fell in love with Uno number two, here, hereafter known as Dose. <laughs> there are those who might consider this story one of extreme narcissism, but there's a profound spiritual message here telling us to consider all other living beings as part of ourselves, which is the truth of the matter. We have good reason to love all beings as ourselves. So maybe we should make a grand statue of Uno, the first living being, and place a replica in all the major plazas and malls of the world. Every being on earth can trace their ancestry back to Uno the tiny single-celled father of us all. Even after creating his companion, Uno kept dividing, and his other half, Dos, started dividing as well. And before you could blink a membrane, two had become four, had become 16, had become 32, and suddenly we were in the midst of a cellular baby boom. And one thing we know for sure, dividing doubles your chances for a happy life. How are you doing? You all right? Yeah. So Uno is the male, right? And Uno is the female. I can't believe I forgot that. <laughs> the whole piece is written as though Una is a female. <laughs> I have to change that if I give it to somebody to read. Lynn Margulis, wonderful molecular biologist, no longer with us, says, our concept of the individual is completely arbitrary. Each of us is a walking ecosystem. Every cell in your body goes through 4,000 transactions a second, processing fuels, exchanging chemical and electrical signals with other cells, monitoring the environment, creating proteins and enzymes, and considering that you have approximately 50 trillion cells in your body, there are a few quadrillion events taking place inside of you every split second. Stay mindful. I've got some wonderful poetry coming up, so don't, don't go away. <laughs> when the Dalai Lama visited Berkeley a few years ago, he gave a uh, sobering speech telling the assembled thousands of people, prepare your mind to know that life is not easy. And he cited our Western desire for perfection and our high expectations as the root causes of our discontent. Tsokni Rinpoche calls it high-class suffering. 
But we not only have a lot to desire, we can fulfill many of our desires, at least temporarily. Maybe that's why so few of us in the West are getting enlightened. A number of years ago, in a moment of weakness, I finally took the great American vow. I said it aloud several times. Desires are endless. I vow to satisfy them all. <laughs> I call it the Bodhisattva vow. That's a good joke. That is really a good <laughs> So one of my favorite poets is a haiku poet named Kobayashi Isa. And uh, he lived uh, in the early 1800s, had a very rough life. His mother died when he was two. He had three children, all who died before him. His house burned down once. But he, he wrote his poetry about other species of life, and sometimes he wrote his poems to other species of life. And he's, he's greatly loved in Japan and uh, needs more. We need more haiku poets like Kobayashi Isa. So I'll play you, or play you. I'll, I'll tell you some of them. This is appropriate, this first one. The holes in the wall play the flute this autumn evening. It's so simple, it's like one moment's experience, you know. Uh, some great haiku master said, you record the mind registering something that's wonderful that you want to preserve, and then you come back and you contrast what you've just experienced with what's going on with you. Even for the emperor, the nightingale sings the same song. Where there are humans, you'll find flies and Buddhas. Even among the insects, some can sing, some can't. One human being, one fly in a large room. <laughs> I'm going out, flies. Relax, make love. <laughs> Mosquito at my ear, does it think I'm deaf? Out from the darkness, back into the darkness, the affairs of the cat. Oh, owl, make some other face. It's springtime.
on how to sing, the Frog School and the Skylark School are arguing. Listen to the frogs. All night they talk about sex. <laughs> and here are I, my two favorites. In these latter-day degenerate times, cherry blossoms everywhere. This world of ours, walking on the roof of hell, gazing at flowers. Kobayashi Isa. The Dalai Lama said this once, or was quoted as saying this, if you think you are too small to make a difference, try sleeping in a room with a mosquito. Physicists have announced that they have finally proven that time does go both backward and forward. If you want to be here now, you should know this. Well, Break the Mirror by Nanao Sakaki. In the morning after taking a cold shower, what a mistake. I look at the mirror. There's this funny guy, gray hair, white beard, wrinkled skin. What a pity. Poor old man. He's not me. Absolutely not. Land and life, fishing in the ocean, sleeping in the desert with stars, building a shelter in the mountains, farming the ancient ways, singing with coyotes, fighting against nuclear war. I'll never be tired of life. Now I'm 17 years old, a very charming young man. I sit down quietly in lotus position, meditating. Suddenly a voice comes to me to, say, to stay young, to save the world, break the mirror. fun to laugh, huh? It's fun to make people laugh. I really enjoy it. <laughs> Let me put it that way. <laughs> you will laugh. <laughs> so let's sit for a few minutes quietly.
I guess I forgot to tell you the point of all that. Um, I, I forgot myself what it was. <laughs> okay. I'm done. I'm finished here. <laughs> <laughs>